0: Hello, my name is Conor Mulva and I'm a tutor in the School of History and Archives in UCD. Today I'm here to talk about the Third Home Rule Bill, which was introduced to the House of Commons on the 11th of April 1912. The Third Home Rule Bill was a bill which planned to set up a new Parliament in Dublin, or in Ireland, whereby Irish representation would move from the Imperial Parliament in Westminster. In addition, Ireland would finally be able to govern govern its own affairs in a situation which hadn't existed since the Act of Union, over 100 years previously. The Third Home Rule Bill planned to create two Houses within an Irish Parliament, a House of Commons with 164 MPs and a Senate with 40 nominated Senators. In addition to this, the Irish representation at Westminster, which then stood at 103 MPs, was to drop to 42 MPs, thus retaining Irish members' abilities to involve themselves in imperial government. A new Irish executive was also intended to be set up. This was under the powers vested within the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, but the religious qualification which had previously existed on the Lord Lieutenant was to be removed. New Irish ministries were also to be established to take over the functions formerly vested in the Chief Secretary and the Irish Office. New Irish ministries were to be set up to administer for the Government of Ireland and to take over functions formerly vested in the Chief Secretary of Ireland and the Irish Office. However, not all the the affairs of Irish government were to be vested in this new Parliament and this new Executive and certain reserved services, as they were called in the Bill, were to be retained by the Imperial Parliament. Among these reserved services were policing, anything to do with the Old Age Pensions Act, the National Insurance Act and the Labour Exchanges Act, in addition to matters such as the Post Office Savings Bank, Trustees Savings Banks, Public Loans and Friendly Societies. Importantly, the collection of taxes was also to be retained by the Imperial Parliament. In addition to all these restrictions, the Irish Parliament could not pass laws on the succession of the Crown, War and Peace, military matters, intergovernmental treaties, extradition or treason. Finally, in terms of the restrictions that were placed on the Irish Parliament, there was an explicit ban on the Irish Parliament making any laws to establish or endow any religion, or to prohibit the free exercise thereof. In addition, religious belief could not be made a condition of marriage, something which had concerned Protestants who were a minority in Ireland up to that point. Given that this was the third Home Rule Bill, it should be noted that there were obviously two Home Rule Bills before this. The first in 1886 had provoked a split within the governing Liberal Party, with the minority siding with the Conservatives and defeating the Bill in the House of Commons. Furthermore, The second Home Rule Bill made it through the House of Commons, only to be defeated in the House of Lords, which vetoed the entire legislation. Thus, by the end of the 19th century, two unsuccessful Home Rule Bills had gone into Parliament. While this did not achieve Home Rule for Ireland, what it did achieve was the implantation of the idea of Home Rule within the British political consciousness at that point. Finally, in discussing predecessors to the Irish Home Rule Bill, it should be noted that in 1907, an Irish Council's Bill was brought in by the newly elected Liberal Government. This Bill proposed a gradualist approach to the Irish question, whereby Ireland would be given a small amount of power, and this could be extended as Ireland proved its own responsibilities for the task. This was rejected by a National Caucus of the United Irish League, the grassroots organisation of Irish nationalism. As such, by 1907, Ireland had firmly asserted the fact that it wanted full Home Rule and not half measures. By 1912, Home Rule was fairly firmly back on the agenda. In 1909, a controversial budget introduced by the Liberal Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, had been vetoed by the House of Lords. The Bill proposed a radical extension of services throughout Britain and Ireland. In addition, it planned to up the amount of naval expenditure within the Imperial Government so as to catch up with Germany within the arms race, which was then dominating relations between Germany and Britain. The People's Budget of 1909 unleashed a constitutional crisis. In 1910, two general elections were held, returning roughly the same result. After the January election, which returned roughly 270 Liberal MPs and 270 Conservative MPs, with the Nationalists holding the balance, as they had done during the previous two Home Rule Bills, with roughly 80 MPs in the middle. In this situation, the Nationalists and the Liberals agreed to form a pact whereby Nationalist support for both the People's Budget and House of Lords reform would be taken in exchange for help with a third Home Rule Bill. The Parliament Act of 1911 abolished the veto of the House of Lords, that which had held up both the People's Budget and the second Home Rule Bill. Thus, when the Home Rule Bill was introduced... In April of 1912, little or no obstacles stood in the way of its enactment as they had in previous instances. The first problem to arise with the Home Rule Bill was on the question of finance. A committee for Irish finance, which was convened in the spring of 1911, found that whereas in the 1890s Ireland was being overtaxed to the tune of 2 million sterling per year, by 1911 Ireland was actually receiving between 1.5 and 2 million more in services than it was paying in tax. The British Cabinet were stunned by these results and they commissioned Herbert Samuel, the then Postmaster General and Protégé to the Prime Minister Asquith to draft new financial clauses for the third Home Rule Bill. As Bishop Dennis Kelly of Ross surmised, the new situation, as envisaged by Samuel, left Ireland not as a mistress but merely as a housekeeper of her own house, given an allowance each year to pay for provisions and upkeep. Other than finance, the other major debate that centred around the First Home Rule discussions was that on federalism. Ireland was not simply the only question on the table when it came to the Third Home Rule Bill. And the Prime Minister clearly outlined that Irish Home Rule was but a first step in a wider extension of local government throughout the British Isles. He envisaged a situation whereby Scotland, Ireland, Wales and in time England would have their own Home Rule parliaments. This followed on from precedents that were set in Canada, Australia and South Africa in 1867, 1900 and 1909 respectively. Thus, the devolution of power to Ireland can be seen in a longer context of giving from the Imperial Parliament more autonomy to local legislatures. It had been discussed at the time that local affairs consumed more than half of Britain's actual discussion time at the House of Commons, in a situation where the Parliament should have been discussing imperial legislation. Interestingly at this time, Arthur Balfour, the former Conservative Prime Minister, declared that federation had always been done through centralisation, as were the cases in the United States and Germany. Never in the history of the world had federation resulted from the breaking up of a government of the unitary type. However, as one American commentator noted, the English had never been seriously influenced by theoretical arguments, or, by example, set by other nations. And true to form, Balfour's concerns for this federation through decentralisation and through breakup were not heeded. The broader scheme outlined by um, the Home Rule Bill in 1912 constituted an English-led drive towards an orderly and peaceful transition from imperial centralised government towards local, federalised autonomy. In practice decolonisation, a subject far too big to get into here, which happened after the Second World War, was both chaotic and reactive with individual constituent parts of the British Empire simply seceding from the Empire as they saw fit and based on the demands of national movements. The situation in 1912 was very different and had it gone through Britain was, was working towards a situation where it would begin its own process of decentralisation in this orderly fashion. Again, looking at the examples from the wider British world, India took example both from the constitutional and the extra-parliamentary traditions within Irish nationalism when looking for its own independence in the 1940s. On the subject of the British Empire and the wider implications of Home Rule, not only the example set by the Home Rule Bill and by decentralisation... Um, come to mind. Ulster also provides its own precedence. The idea that an economically advanced and culturally distinct region would break away from a country on the verge of its own independence was echoed not only in 1960 when Belgium pulled out of the Congo only to see the province of Katanga, which was much more economically advanced from its neighbour, break away, but also much more recently. In July 2011, the religiously separate and potentially oil-rich South Sudan broke away from the poorer Muslim north, replicating a situation which had been seen in Ulster between 1912 and 1914. Having discussed both the federal and the financial problems with the Home Rule Bill, it should be remembered that while fiscal and federal arguments outlined here were to the fore in the early debates on Home Rule, by the time the actual Home Rule Bill gathered momentum, The real concerns around the Home Rule Bill centred on Ulster and the fears that this religiously separate and economically advanced province would have to fall into line with the Dublin Parliament, unsympathetic with the uniqueness of Ulster. By 1912 it was clear that Home Rule rule could not be defeated through parliamentary means as it happened previously. With this realisation Ulster began to assert itself through extra-constitutional means. On the 28th of September 1912 the Solemn League and Covenant was signed and Ulster pledged to defend itself from the tyranny of Home Rule by all means possible. In January of 1913 the Ulster Volunteer Force was formally established thus creating an organised paramilitary group within Ireland pledged to defeat Home Rule. This was responded to in November of 1913 by the establishment of the Irish Volunteers. At this point there were two Mutually exclusive bodies pitted against each other on the island of Ireland and civil war began to thicken as a concept in the political debate. The situation worsened further in March of 1914 when senior army officers stationed at the Curra threatened to resign their commissions rather than impose Home Rule on an unwilling Ulster. By April, the Ulster Volunteer Force had armed itself through a highly successful and efficient gun-running exercise at Larne. At this point, the King intervened and the Buckingham Palace Conference was convened in July of 1914 in a last-dish effort to solve the Home Rule Bill through peaceful and constitutional means. However, the conference ended in utter failure and only two days later, on the 26th of July, 1914, arms were landed by the National Volunteers at Hoth in County Dublin. The Hoth gun running was immediately followed by a situation where a small group of supporters of the Irish Volunteers taunted a group of British soldiers in the middle of Dublin. This led to the British soldiers opening fire, and the Bachelors Walk killings, as they are now known, resulted in four civilian dead in the provincial capital, just ten days before Britain declared war on Germany. The mood was now tense, and civil war seemed closer than ever. The attention of politicians and public alike was focused on Ireland, at a time when it should have by right been turned to the graver situations occurring elsewhere. Historians agree that the First World War was one of the greatest turning points in the history of Ireland. In many ways, it was as important for what it averted as for what it caused. Britain had not seen civil war since the 17th century, but the home real crisis brought society to the brink of open and armed conflict. Only a conflict on a global scale could have eclipsed the animosity and the divisions that threatened to tear apart the fabric of British and Irish society in 1914. Now a century on from the introduction of the bill that ushered in this crisis, society in Ireland and Britain must reflect on how we commemorate these events that led to the creation of two Irelands, and simultaneously introduce violence on a character and a scale that eclipsed any other in the modern period.